You found us through fly fishing. You'll stay for our passion and the community. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. Yeah, but he doesn't get it. How come fly fishermen don't get it? You only haul with the short power snap. Look for where people walk and the insides of bends and hunt those. The roof blew off and the interior walls got sucked out and the trees are just coming up. And I mean, he's clearly not going to clear the trees. It is not a fly fishing story. It's a story about me trying to understand my brother through fly fishing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We've been waiting for you. Follow our guests, follow us on Instagram, and share this episode and the love if you enjoy this podcast. And we are live in three, two, one. How you doing, Mark? Doing great, Dave. Nice, nice. What's what's going on out there uh, this week? Are you guys uh, having a pretty normal week out there? Uh, well, we just had our first frost of the year last night, so it was a little a uh, little nippy getting up this morning. But um, uh, it's supposed to climb back up, you know, pushing seventy. So it's you know we're in the thick of the autumn uh, season, and so. Um, you know, fishing's picking up in some areas and um just excited about this time of year. It's beautiful out here. Oh, yeah. Are you getting some fall colors? Yep. Yeah, we're, just, we're starting to get, um you know, some yellows and oranges. Um Everyone's a little concerned because we had such an incredibly dry uh, year. I mean, we, we've had drought conditions out here for quite some time. And the, you know, thinking is that when you have drought conditions, all the, the fall colors due to lack of water become much more muted. So everybody's sort of waiting to see as to what actually happens. Oh, wow. So, yeah, that's right. It's been a pretty – well. so has it been a, a dry year overall so far? Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, we, we had we – had, um, you know, I live in the, in the Shenandoah Valley, um, right smack in the middle of the valley, really. And we, we had very little snow last year. I mean, just a couple of dustings and no, no pack to speak of. And so the, the year started out back in March with, with low water. And we had a couple of occasions where we got a nice storm system to come through and it popped it up just a little bit, but, um, it's really just been low for the entire year. And, um, and, and right now it's, you know, some of the lowest water we've had for this time of year and, you know, like more than recent memory, really. I mean, you, you need to go back 20 plus years. Oh, really? So it's been, yeah, it's a pretty dry year then. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, a lot of the, um, towns and communities have put in, uh, you know, drought provisions of, you know, no washing of your cars and, you know, just trying to use some common sense approaches to conserve water. Gotcha. Yeah, this is the same story we've been hearing a little bit just about, you know, the kind of part of this, you know, climate change, things are changing. And I know up in your neck of the woods, you're having a, sounds like a pretty low water year, but um, uh, we're going to talk about that, the Shenandoah uh, River Keeper, some of the fishing you do out there and you know, and some fly fishing along the way today. But let, let's take it back real quick on fly fishing. We always love to start out on how you got into it and your first memory. So, so what is that first memory of fly fishing for you? Oh, God. Um, I was given a used L.L. Bean fly slash spinning rod. You know, it was a, probably a little bit too whippy for a spinning rod. 
and a little bit too floppy and whatever for a fly rod. But nonetheless, it still worked. And I took it out on a stream and made a few casts. And the first fish I caught was about a three-pound channel catfish. And I was like, oh, my God, this is the biggest thing I've ever seen. And, you know, I was like 12 years old and there's nobody around. And, you know, it, it put up a heck of a fight. And from that moment on, I was, I was pretty much hooked. Wow, a channel catfish. So was that yep. something you were targeting out there? No, I didn't even know there was a channel catfish in this in the stream. I, I knew that there were some some bass and some sunfish, and really, I was just going for sunfish more than anything. Um, and and somebody gave me a you know a couple of chewed up woolly buggers, and that's what I was throwing. You know, sort of the classic first fly to use on a on a fly rod. And um, yeah, it just sort of came up. Aware in this little deeper pool. Gotcha. Yeah. So, is a channel catfish like what? What is the? Are they native to that range? Or I'm not even sure on the channel catfish. Yeah, yeah. Channel catfish are native to the area and to the range. I mean, the invasive species are the are the blue cats and the flathead cats that have been, you know, brought into rivers and are really sort of disrupting the ecosystem and a number of river systems, uh, the Potomac included. But channel catfish are are a native species. Okay. All right. Well, I think I want to start off the top. We've got a lot to talk about, but, um, you know, the Shenandoah river keeper, like you mentioned, the uh, Potomac river keeper is our river network is basically the kind of overarching group that kind of encompasses Shenandoah and some other ones, but maybe we could start there. Talk about, you know, the river keeper for those that aren't familiar with it. I think it's a pretty big name as far as conservation groups out there. Can you talk about, um, maybe the Shenandoah and the connection to the river keeper network? Yeah, so I am the Shenandoah Riverkeeper, and I'm part of the Potomac Riverkeeper Network. And inside the network, there are three keepers. There's the Shenandoah, there's the Potomac, and there is the Upper Potomac Riverkeeper. And the nexus of our three areas of responsibility is at Harper's Ferry, uh, West Virginia, right where the Shenandoah and the Potomac um, meet right there at the confluence. And so everything upstream of Harper's Ferry um, on the Potomac is responsibility for the upper Potomac River Keeper and everything downstream is the Potomac and then I have all of the Shenandoah River and we're part of the Potomac River Keeper Network and River Keeper organizations a lot of people are real curious about them and they want to know are they you know do they get funded by you know, state department of wildlife resources or, you know, department of environmental quality, or are they a state agency? And the answer is no, we are, we are a nonprofit and um, we do on occasion get some government funds to execute a specific project or to co-host a specific event, but we get no day-to-day budgetary funding from any governmental organizations. Um, and, and really one of the distinguishing features between Waterkeeper groups and say friends groups because there are lots of um, you know friends of the Potomac, friends of the Shenandoah, and I'm on the board of Friends of the uh, Shenandoah River, and I'm you know I'm a active supporter and member of Friends of the North Fork, and I have nothing but good things to say about friends groups. But the distinguishing feature between waterkeepers and friends groups is that waterkeepers will litigate. We will go to court. We will use federal, state, and local laws to protect the river and to protect our water. And, um, and so the, the, the primary 
piece of legislation that we use is the Clean Water Act, uh, which was uh, passed back in 1972, 50 years ago. And, and so we use that piece of legislation for a lot of our pollution cases when they need to go to court. And then the other important aspect of the, of the Clean Water Act is that it provides for citizen lawsuits. And so we use that provision to take entities to court. So if there's a manufacturing facility or there is a wastewater treatment plant or uh, there's a mining operation going on and it's violating clean water laws, we will use the Clean Water Act to go after them. You know, if, if we need to, um, we always try to talk to folks first and see what's going on and, uh, you know, try to get them to do the right thing. But if we get blown off or ignored or uh, they just want to, you know, keep on keeping on, um, we will then use the, the Clean Water Act for, uh, for our litigation. The one shortcoming of the Clean Water Act is that the Clean Water Act divides pollution up into point source and non-point source. So what is that? Point source is, is where you can, you can point to a, a pipe. You know, there is a pipe coming in from this manufacturing facility and it's dumping pollution into a river. And and so they have to have a pollution permit saying that this facility can deposit and put into the river X number of pounds of this or, you know, so many micrograms of that. And and so the the permit specifies as to what they can and cannot do. And so what's non-point source pollution? So the Clean Water Act does not cover non-point source pollution. Non-point source pollution is really a, it's a fancy way of addressing agriculture without saying agriculture. And so, you know, an agricultural operation, a farm, a, a large farm, they may be polluting the river and it, it may be that there's, you know, f- soil runoff from all the fields and they're putting way too much nitrogen and phosphorus from, you know, putting cattle manure and poultry litter on, on the fields. Well, it's difficult to bring a clean water lawsuit against a, an agricultural operation because it's a non-point source. However, if there is industrialized farming going on to such an extent that they need a pipe to deposit their, you know, their waste into the, into the river then they too will require a a you know a point source pollution permit, and in Virginia, you know it's called a VIPTES permit, and so it can be captured that way. And but it, it makes it much more challenging to go after agriculture operations that are polluting river systems. And you know, going back to Potomac River Keeper Network, you know we also are part of Water Keepers Chesapeake. There are. 17 water keepers in the Chesapeake Bay region. And then our, our sort of parent group or whatever is the Water Keeper Alliance um, at the, based out of New York City. It's an international organization, actually. And there are water keepers in Latin America, South America, uh, over in Asia. But the vast majority of the, of the water keepers are in the United States. And, um, you know, there, it's not all just rivers. And so, I mean, I am a river keeper, but there are coast keepers and bay keepers and lake keepers. But, uh, you know, we are part of the Potomac River Keeper Network system. And so 
we are the the three of the keepers are, are river keepers. Gotcha, river keeper. Okay, and and like you said, you have this um, at Harper's Ferry is the confluence, or, or where they come together the uh, the Potomac right. and the Shenandoah. And then, what would be an example of a project you guys you know you've worked on in the Shenandoah that would kind of give shed a little more light on what you do as far as these maybe a lawsuit or just some successful project out there? Sure. Yeah. Um, a few years back, there was a uh, wastewater treatment plan at one of the ski resorts here in the Shenandoah region. And, um, and they were treating waste from the ski resort and from a lot of the condominiums and houses built along the, the resort. And from the very beginning, it was underbuilt. And uh, they were struggling to stay under their pollution allocation uh, for the, uh, you know, for the river. And uh, so what they were doing is that they were buying nutrient credits on a nutrient trading, you know, market. And essentially in the Chesapeake Bay, there is a large Chesapeake Bay cleanup operation going on and has been going on for, you know, a very long time. And there, you know, everyone is very interested in cleaning up the Chesapeake Bay. And in, in one of the ways in which the bay is being cleaned up is they are allowing nutrient trading to occur. And when I say nutrient, I mean nitrogen and phosphorus. And so there could be a facility and they are in violation of their clean water permit. And so I'm just going to use round numbers that they're allowed to deposit 100 pounds of nitrogen in the river and, and 10 pounds of phosphorus you know, a day. And these are just completely notional numbers. And, and they're producing 30% more than that or 20% more than that. And, and so they're in violation of that, of that permit. And so instead of upgrading their facility, they just simply buy nutrient credits from a facility that has a permit saying that the facility can you know, deposit 500 pounds of nitrogen or 100 pounds of phosphorus a day. And that facility is not anywhere close to meeting those numbers. And so the first facility would go out and buy these nutrient credits and, you know, buy the facility that already had that, that permit in hand. And so from the Chesapeake Bay, you know, perspective, they're still keeping all of the facilities under this threshold limit. And so, at the end of the day, it's improving the Chesapeake Bay, but it's actually harming the waters of the Shenandoah River because it's allowing this facility way upstream where we are to continue to pollute. And so what's nitrogen and what's phosphorus do to our river? Well, what it really does is it helps kickstart algal blooms in the river system. And so in this particular facility, uh, their permit, because permits come up for renewal every five years. And so this permit came up for renewal. And we said, this facility is not a good facility for nutrient trading. We, we have large numbers of algal blooms occurring on the river. And we don't need, you know, facilities exceeding their, their pollution numbers. And it's harming the use and enjoyment, and it's an impairing our river. It, essentially, Virginia Department of Environmental Quality, they said, note it, you know, appreciate your concern, 
And the facility essentially did the same thing. And then we said, all right, here is our notice of intent to sue. So the Clean Water Act says before you can actually sue a facility, you have to give them a letter, a 60-day notice of intent to sue, um, that you're going to take them to court for violating the Clean Water Act. And so we did that. We provided them with a notice of intent to sue. And then at that moment, they sort of found religion and they're like, oh, what seems to be the problem here? And, and we sat down and we had a couple of conversations with them and we explained what's going on and why this is not, you know, a good facility for nutrient trading. And so we did not end up having to sue, but the use of this notice of intent to sue was of enough of a stick to get them at the table and to talk about it. And so um, at the end of the day, well, actually, it was a couple months, but, you know, at the end of the proverbial day, DEQ, Department of Environmental Quality, they said, you know what? We agree with you. Um, this is not a good facility for nutrient trading, and we are not going to permit nutrient trading to take place here. And the facility is going to have to upgrade their their wastewater treatment plant. And instead of having it be a four-year upgrade, the facility has agreed to do it in one year. So it's going to be a one year um, to upgrade their facility. And oh, by the way, here are numeric nutrient limits. You know, it's like roughly four milligrams per liter of water for nitrogen and, and 0.3, I think it was, for, for phosphorus. And, um, you know, is that good or bad? I mean, you know, quite honestly, it, it's kind of the um, industry standard numbers, I guess you could say. You know, it wasn't, you know, extremely low, but it also, you know, it wasn't, you know, carte blanche to continue what they were doing. And and so they they achieved those numbers and, you know, were able to, to reduce their nitrogen and phosphorus load. And then we, you know, after I think it was two years, we went back and we looked at the the streams leading into the South Fork of the Shenandoah and we found that the algae that was just so prominent earlier was was no longer there it was just a regular stream and um and so that's an example and, and the other thing is too is that in each riverkeeper system is is kind of different but with potomac riverkeeper network our headquarters is in washington dc and, and you know as i mentioned that we will litigate and you know last year we had about um you know is just over i think one and a half million dollars in pro bono legal assistance. And so and so when we provide a notice of intent to sue, you know, anybody in the industry sort of knows that, oh, the riverkeepers, they're hit us with a notice of intent to sue. They're not joking around because our our attorneys are, you know, we, we use, you know, national uh, organizations, Earth Justice, we use regional organizations, Southern Environmental Law Center. We use law school clinics from like um, University of Virginia and Maryland and Georgetown. And then we have a lot of, um, you know, in D.C. where all of the law firms are in the middle of D.C. is called K Street. And so we, we have a lot of K Street law firms uh, willing to, to do our, our work and to take up our case. And, um, and so collectively, you know, we have some incredibly good environment, environmental attorneys, you know, looking after our, our work. And, and so, 
you know, when, when we go to court, we're ready, we're prepared. Um, we're not messing around. So amazing. That's one of the things that we do. That's a great example. I love that because I think that, um, yeah, without that, it, it sounds like there would still be um, pollution going on. And from one little action, oh, absolutely. you're able yeah. to get them changed. Why do you think the DEQ, it seems like, um, you know, that that would be an easy thing they could do. Why do you think they just didn't do that up front? You know, why did it take um, the notice from you to, for, the, for them to do it? Do you think they didn't know about it or just they've just kind of lots going? I, you know, I try to give um, DEQ the benefit of the doubt. I work with DEQ on a number of other projects, and I think that they, you know, are good people trying to do the right thing. But they try to, I think DEQ tries to balance the needs of the environment against the needs of businesses and, and operations. And, and so if, if they are, you know, have a permit on file that they believe it seems to be working. Okay. No one's complaining about it. I think life will go on as is. It's a case of the squeaky wheel getting the grease. And the other thing is too, is that um, a lot of the monies and a lot of the, the budgetary dollars come from, getting the Chesapeake Bay cleaned oh, up. Right. And sure. and so so from the Chesapeake Bay perspective, nutrient trading is a great thing. It's an easy way for a facility to remain under its its pollution numbers and and the bay is still getting cleaned up because there's another facility out there that could be polluting at a hundred percent, but they actually made the improvements to their facility and they're only using half of their of their load. That's what it's called, a load. And so they're only using half of their load. So from the Chesapeake Bay perspective, it's an easy way to get facilities on board to, you know, engage in nitrogen and phosphorus reductions. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's interesting. And as you look at, like, the, the mission, you know, the DEQ Virginia, it says to protect and enhance the environment of Virginia in order to promote the health and well-being of the Commonwealth citizens, residents, and visitors in accordance with applicable laws and regulations. So, yeah, it really doesn't say anything in there about business. I mean, it seems like maybe, yeah. right? But that is but that is part of just any, yeah, yeah. any group, right? Any group is going to be thinking about those things. Correct, yeah. I mean, from a legislator standpoint or you know, the governor, you know, they're all looking about, you know, who put them in office and you know, is this harming businesses? Is this harming, you know, commerce? And so, but, you know, here was a, you know, this, this you know, wastewater treatment plant for the ski resort that was just simply underbuilt from the get-go. And, and they're using the public resource, public water, to make a profit and to make a buck. And, and everybody's just sort of turning a blind eye to it. And, um, and so without, you know, our work and the Riverkeeper work to call attention to it and to threaten a clean water lawsuit, it probably would still be going on. Still be going. No, it's amazing. I think that it shows you the power of groups like yourselves and there's lots others that are doing similar things and around the country. So this is great. Where could just at the top, um, before we get too far into this, um, where could somebody, if they were interested either they're in the Virginia area or around the country, because river keepers are all over the country. Where would will you send them if they want to find out more about their local groups? Yeah. Uh, the national webpage is waterkeeperalliance.org. Okay. And great. when they go there, they can, um, you know, go to their respective States 
and, um, you know, find, hopefully find a riverkeeper, you know, doing good work in their area. That's awesome. Well, and I want to touch a little bit more on the broader Riverkeeper history, but let's let's jump into the Shenandoah a little bit because we're doing a cool event with the um, a bunch of great brands out there, including the Mossy Creek um, Fly Shop, and uh, we're mm-hmm. going to be doing a little giveaway event and working. It's just going to be an awesome thing. We're going to be heading out there, but talk a little bit about like broad picture Shenandoah for those. There's this national park. There's it seems like it's this massive, amazing uh, river basin. Can you describe just high level what it looks like, where it starts, where it flows into? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. The, the Shenandoah watershed, the, the, you know, the Shenandoah river system, it's, it's three, it drains 3000 square miles. And, you know, when people talk about the Shenandoah river, in reality, there are three reaches of the Shenandoah. There's the North fork of the Shenandoah. There's the South fork of the Shenandoah. And then there's the main stem of the Shenandoah. And so the North fork, um, is on the, the Western side of the Massanutten mountain range. And then the South Fork of the Shenandoah is on the eastern side of the Massanutten Mountain Range. And the South Fork and North Fork are, you know, ballpark roughly 100 miles long each. And then the North Fork and the South Fork, they come together in Front Royal, Virginia. And at that point, they create the main stem of the Shenandoah River or just the Shenandoah River. And then that flows for another 50 miles in both the North Fork and South Fork and the main stem, all three flow north. And they flow north up to Harper's Ferry. And um, and so of the 50 miles of the Shenandoah River, the 30 miles are, remain in Virginia, and it's roughly, you know, ballpark, the last 20, 25 miles is what's in West Virginia. And so we all love John Denver and his song, you know, right. um, you know, country Rocky Mountain or whatever. High. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, really only about 25 miles of the Shenandoah is in the in the West Virginia uh, state. And then the other thing of, of note, as a crow flies, you know, the whole watershed is, is roughly about 125 miles long. But the other thing that's really important, I think, out here is that in addition to being a watershed, the Shenandoah Valley is really sort of a, a cultural way of life. And there are towns and communities that actually have their, or outside of the Shenandoah watershed, but they're still, you know, part in their mind, part of the Shenandoah Valley. And they still readily and strongly identify with the, you know, with the whole sort of Shenandoah Valley mindset and culture. Every year in the spring in May, there's the Shenandoah Apple Blossom Festival up in Winchester, Virginia. And it draws hundreds of thousands of people. It's crazy how big it is. And and the Shenandoah Riverkeeper, we're in the, they have two giant parades. The first is on Friday night. And the second one is on that Saturday afternoon. And the Friday night parade is the first responder parade. And and we're in that. And, you know, that's like a, I, I don't know, it's like a five mile long parade. Wow. And, you know, people are like 10 deep, on, you know, in the parade, hooping and hollering and cheering. And um, what's interesting is that the town of Winchester is actually in the Potomac watershed. And so their water drains into the Potomac River. It does not drain into the Shenandoah River system. 
but yet one of the biggest cultural events of the year takes place right there in in the town of uh, Winchester, and so everybody identifies with the uh, with the river, and they actually, you know, this is getting sort of wonky and nerdy, but they actually pull water for the city out of the North Fork of the Shenandoah, even though they are not part of the North Fork of the Shenandoah watershed. And then when they release that water, when it goes to their wastewater treatment plant, it bypasses the rest of the Shenandoah River system and it flows north um, through Occoquan Creek, or um, I'm sorry, Opaquan Creek, and um, and gets released up into the uh, Potomac River. Mm. So Wow, this is so cool. Yeah, so the Shenandoah Valley, it's, it's not just a watershed. It's just sort of a whole cultural mindset, I think. Yeah. I love this because it's, uh, it's, it's really interesting because you have all the conservation work you're doing and all that. But you, if you look at this, I mean, this area is also, there's so much history here, all these names, you know, and I haven't been out to all the, these areas. I'm hoping to this year get out there. But some of these towns, right, you, t- you go back to the history of this country, right, and some of the things that have gone on, Fredericksburg. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, just Washington, you know, yeah. just everything, right? You get, you go back to the civil sure, war yeah. and all this amazing history. And so it's really, I think it'd be interesting to kind of explore that area, but yeah, it's no, it's just an amazing place. I mean, a lot of the, you know, from the civil war and, you know, pre-civil war and, you know, like the town of Harper's Ferry, it's a Harper's Ferry is maybe, I don't even think it's, it's maybe 5,000 people. If that, I don't even think it's 5,000 people, but yet you know, its role in our nation's history. I mean, it was the John Brown raid that many people point to as, as really sort of the start of the Civil War. Oh, wow. Even though it, you know, it preceded, you know. Oh, that's right. You know, that and, and you know, and not just John Brown's, you know, raid, but I mean, after the war, you know, at Harper's Ferry, it was one of the store college, which was one of, it was not the, but it was one of the first African-American colleges in the United States, uh, that was, that was right there. And so it, it played a, you know, a massive role. And, and even Lewis and Clark, they got a lot of their outfitting and provisions from the foundries there in Harper's Ferry and took it all the way West. Oh, wow. And so, there you go. um, yeah, so there's, there's all of that. And, uh, and then if you ever want to win a bar bet, just ask somebody where John Brown's raid occurred and people will, almost invariably very quickly say Harper's Ferry, West Virginia. But the true answer is Harper's Ferry, Virginia, because at the time of John Brown's raid, 1859, Harper's Ferry was still part of Virginia. And it wasn't until 1863 when the westernmost counties of Harper's Ferry, uh, I'm sorry, of West Virginia, seceded from from Virginia and created the new state of of West Virginia. So um, the, the... the, the raid actually took place in Harper's Ferry, Virginia. Interesting. Wow, this is this is good stuff. So I love, the, yeah, yeah, we love, we then, love the history. Just, this is good. Yeah, I just and then just one other quick thing about history, because I'm a bit of a history nerd, and I'll, I'll jump off on it. But, you know, when Columbus discovered America in 1492, and, you know, all that was going on, there were Native Americans that were living in the Shenandoah Valley for the previous 13 to 15,000 years years, 13 to 15,000 years, all up and down the Shenandoah Valley. And, um, you know, one of the, not one of the oldest known building structure, uh, in North America was discovered on the South Fork of the Shenandoah, just South of Front Royal, uh, 
at a uh, at a Smithsonian research dig. The area is called Thunderbird, and the only thing that was left of the of the longhouse um, are the the remains through carbon dating of the log poles of the building. But um, it's supposedly the the oldest building known in in North America. No kidding. Is that near uh, Is that near Shenandoah River State Park, or where, where would that be? Yes, exactly. Yep, it's just it's just north, um, just downstream of Shenandoah River State Park. Okay, it's absolutely yeah, right. Right at Flint Run, where Flint Run runs into uh, the South Fork of the Shenandoah. Today's episode is sponsored by Tokens Fly Shop. Tokens Fly Shop provides superior quality products at a great price. They have also a great YouTube channel that you could check out right now with uh, new fly tying tutorials each week. Tokens also has you covered if you're looking for unique in-house products, and they also support uh, many, many of the great brands out there that you know and trust. It's been fun connecting with Justin and the family uh, over the years now, and it's it's been really cool, a great local fly shop. Tokens is also offering their fly tying box where they send out materials at a regular cadence where you don't even have to think of it. You just open the mailbox and there's your Tokens pack. And I recently made an order through Tokens and the experience is always perfect. They've got you covered if you ever have questions or need any help, whether that's a YouTube tutorial or connecting with them uh, personally. Since 2005, Tokens has been over delivering on customer service. And it's time for you to check out uh, Tokens Buzz for yourself. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash Tokens right now to check out their diverse selection of products today. You support this podcast by clicking through that link to Tokens online. That's Tokens, T-O-G-E-N-S. Okay, back to the show. So how, and, and again, maybe we'll have to bring you back on to talk more of a, a full history because this is really interesting. And hopefully we'll be out there I think we will be this next year in, in 24. And as we speak now, it's um, it's October. And I think we just had actually, I mean, it's Columbus Day, but I think it's also Indigenous Peoples Day as well. I think it that's is, maybe, yep. yeah. Indigenous Peoples Day, yep. yeah. Yeah, yep. so we just Absolutely. we just had that, which is kind of celebrating, you know, obviously, uh, you know, a lot of the Native Americans and folks like you mentioned that were here, you know, long before the Civil War and all that stuff. But um, but yeah, we'll, we'll hold some of that off till another episode. I, I do want to talk about, uh, you know, as far as back to the water quality. So how do you find, you know, the most important or the issues that you're going to work on? I'm sure there's tons of water quality issues all over the region. How do you know which one do you get tips? Or like, it sounds like the DEQ, if they're not seeing it, like, how are you finding them? Yeah, so so DEQ, um, they actually, you know, they do a good job in that, um, you know, each of the facilities, like a, a, you know, a municipal town wastewater treatment plant, they have to have a pollution permit as well. And it allows them that they can do X, Y, and Z. And so they have to um, produce what they're called DMRs, discharge monitoring records. And and so they have to track what it is that's going into the river. And they may, you know, be allocated, you know, again, 10 pounds of nitrogen a day or, or whatever it is. And they exceed it and they're putting in 12 pounds of nitrogen a day. People say, well, wh- can't they just lie about it? And, you know, the short answer is, yeah, I guess they can lie about it. But when these facilities, they're maintained by a certified operator and, you know, when he or her signs their name to the document, they are personally attesting to the accuracy. 
And so if later on in, you know, in analysis, they find that someone was falsifying the records, while the facility may get in trouble, the individual that signed the DMRs can get into a lot of trouble. They can be held, they can be held personally liable and responsible um, for for falsifying those records. And so that comes with a, a, a criminal penalty and everything else. So, you know, no one is going to be uh, doing that. So, and, and so we track those DMRs and we, and we track the pollution permits and, and we talk to DQ and um, in the Shenandoah Valley, there are just 100 pollution permits and they're up for renewal every five years. And every five years, they're supposed to be doing what they can to upgrade the facility. And so it could be that, um, you know, a new technological process um, becomes available or the price for this process drops in, um, in cost. And, and so now they're able to, to reduce their numbers and so they can ratchet down those numbers, you know, or there are new manufacturing processes that, get, um, you know, sort of certain dangerous chemicals out from being used. Um, and so that goes on. So we, so we track that and, uh, we track that quite a bit. And then the other thing that we do is that we patrol the river. Um, we get out there and we actually paddle the river. And, um, and so we put in about, on average, I would say 350 to 400 miles a year paddling uh, the river. And so we are out there. Nobody else does that. Department of Environmental Equality does not do that. Virginia Department of Health does not do that. Counties do not do that. We do that. And so we're out there. You know, what are we looking for? Well, we're looking for anything, really. Is there a pipe stem that's been illegally put in place and, and someone is dumping chemicals into the river and it, it shouldn't be there and it's not on any records. And so we look for that. We look for our cattle herds in the river and are they ripping up the stream bank? Are, are there agricultural operations that um, are going on that, you know, can cause harm to the, to the river? I know that you know, uh, next year sometime you'll be down with the Mossy Creek boys and, and Brian and, and Colby are great dudes and they run a great shop and, and they fish, I mean, their namesake, they fish Mossy Creek a lot. And they, I don't know, this is, I don't know, three years ago or so, something like that, they called and they said, something's going on on Mossy Creek. I mean, there's no vegetation on this stretch of, of river, uh, on this stretch of the creek. And so we run down there and, what had happened was, I mean, it was not intentional. It was not malicious. It was not anything. But um, there, there was a, a farm, and the the, the farm. I, I can't recall now if he passed away or if he got uh, very ill, and um, he was not able to to farm the land. And a couple of his uh, sons or nephews or somebody came in, and they were trying to assist him, and and so they were spraying some. Uh, or they were putting water into a tank for spraying for herbicides. And, and so they go down to the river and, you know, with a, you know, with a little trailer with a tank on it and they pull out, you know, 
whatever it is, you know, 200 gallons of, of water. And uh, the thing gets filled and then they're done. It's losing daylight. They're going to get the, the tank in the morning or whatever. And, um, and so they just leave it and they forget to close the valve. And so this tank with herbicides, which kills grasses, which kills vegetation, spills into Mossy Creek. And um, literally within two or three days, you know, all of the watercress, all of the, you know, um, good subaquatic vegetation, all of that just simply dies. It's just gone. And you're just looking at, you know, a, probably a, a three-mile stretch of water where the both sides of the, um, of the creek were completely denuded of vegetation. And, and it wasn't until that, you know, that chemical release got further down and got diluted into the water system that it lost its, you know, potency and, and vegetation came back. And, um, you know, it was pretty shocking to see. And so anyway, when we're out on the river, we're looking for things like that. We're looking to see, you know, are, you know, are there, you know, illicit irrigation operations going on and someone pulling, you know, water at a massive scale out of the, the river to irrigate fields. And there's no, um, irrigation, you know, permit on file. You know, we're looking for, like I said, cattle herds that are ripping up the stream bank things of that nature. We're looking for harmful algal blooms, you know, massive algal blooms that may not be harmful, but they're so large that if they die off or when they die off, they have the potential to create a condition of what's called hypoxia, where they can it, the algal bloom die-off consumes all of the oxygen very quickly in an area, and you can get a very localized and very sudden fish kill. And so... Um, so we're out there looking at that. We're pulling water samples to test for anatoxin A, which was in in algal bloom over on the North Fork of the Shenandoah two years ago. We were paddling the river and we saw this very large algal bloom on the North Fork of the Shenandoah near the town of Strasburg. And so we took photographs, you know, showing the expanse of this algal bloom. And, and then we write up a, you know, one page complaint saying, you know, on July 30th, we were floating, you know, this stretch. And when we came across this algal bloom that went for approximately, you know, 600 yards and, exp and it spanned the breadth of the, of the river. And there were areas where it, it was very pungent in its smell. And, and essentially we just try in one page to describe it. And then, we take photographs of what we are seeing and our, our digital camera automatically captures the latitude and longitude um, of, the, of the photograph. And then we submit that to the Virginia Department of Environmental Quality. And we also submit it to Virginia Department of Health for potential harmful algal bloom. And so we had been doing that for several years in and sending it off because the Virginia Department of Health has a online portal that you can submit algal bloom complaints. And we've been doing that for roughly over two years. And we didn't even get sort of a pat on the head of like, you know, thank you very much for your contribution to national security, you know, n you know, n nothing. And in this particular instance, 
we submit our our complaint and we submit our photographs and then about a week later virginia department of health issues a harmful algal bloom alert for roughly five miles and then it got expanded to 10 miles and then about a week later it got expanded to 52 and a half miles and um and so the algal blooms that they were you know that they tested with virginia department of health they were finding toxins you know in the in the river system for 52 and a half miles and so they issued the first ever harmful algal bloom alert and people asked me you know aren't you upset by that and aren't you bothered by that and i gave sort of a qualified yes but i said yeah i'm bothered by it i'm the river keeper and and i see this and 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 i'm upset by what's going on and you know the fact that there are toxins in the river that have the potential to to harm people pets and livestock and and the fact that it stretched for 52 and a half miles but i said but on the other hand I can assure you this is not the first harmful algal bloom that has ever occurred on the North Fork of the Shenandoah. It's simply the first harmful algal bloom alert that Virginia Department of Health has ever issued. And that tells me that they're paying attention to our complaints and they're looking at what's going on. And so in some respects, I was a bit relieved and a bit happy that finally they're paying attention. And so... So, yeah, so that took place in 2021. And then um, in 2022, there were no harmful algal bloom alerts. And you can say, oh, that's wonderful. There were no harmful algal bloom alerts until you dig into a little bit. And what you unravel is that Virginia Department of Health, they have no budget for freshwater harmful algal bloom testing. No budget. And... And back in 2021, when they saw our complaints and they went out and they had Virginia um, Department of Environmental Quality go out as a favor to their sister agency. And so DEQ went out and they pulled algal mat samples. They, too, didn't really have the budget to be sending their, their biologist out pulling samples, but they did it. And so I give them mad props because they, they were trying to be good government stewards of our river and do the right thing. And so Virginia Department of Health, they pulled money out of their saltwater budget, saltwater testing budget for, for the beaches along Virginia Beach and Norfolk and over in that area. And they used those monies to test for harmful algal blooms or test for toxins and these potential harmful algal blooms. And they found in these algal bloom mats, the presence of anatoxin A, which is a which is a neurotoxin, which is not anything to be trifled with at all. And they also found microcystin, which is another toxin in blue-green, what's called blue-green algae. It's really cyanobacteria. And so they they issued this 52 and a half mile harmful algal bloom alert. And then even though Department of Virginia Department of Health back in 2021 was doing the right thing and following the proper lab protocols for harmful algal blooms, two of their lab technicians fell ill by dealing with this material. And, and so here they are trying to do the right thing. 
and two of their staff get sick and they don't have money to do this anyway out of their budget. And so in 2021, I'm sorry, in 2022, there was no systematic testing that went on for, for uh, anatoxin A and for microcystin. And instead, what they did is they put up squishy posters and flyers saying where, where there were large algal mats and, and algal blooms occurring. They said, this is an area, this is an algal bloom advisory. The algal mats that you see may contain toxins may be harmful to humans, may be harmful to pets and livestock. We strongly urge you to not, you know, enter the river and to recreate elsewhere. And so it was a much squishier, you know, posting and uh, of these algal blooms than what took place in 2021. And so you might think, well, you know, if you didn't know any better, you would think, oh, 2022, we're doing better because, we don't have these, which was not the case. We didn't have the budget for the testing. That's all. Wow. And what about this year in 23? And so, so this year there have been no, again, no harmful algal blooms alerts issued, but again, there's still not testing going on for, because there's no budget to do this harmful algal bloom testing for, for toxins. And what we did is that we went to, the Virginia General Assembly are, you know, the equivalent of, you know, our state legislator, legislature, and we lobbied and advocated for a freshwater harmful algal bloom budget. That did not, you know, it didn't get legs. It did not pass. We didn't get anybody to even, any legislator to even, you know, put in a proposed, you know, bill. But the one thing that we did get, we actually got two things through our work and, and efforts of, you know, us and Chesapeake Bay Foundation and James River Association and other environmental groups is we did get chlorophyll A standards put in place for the entirety of the Shenandoah River as a stand-in for nitrogen and phosphorus numbers because we had been fighting for a very long time to get numeric nutrient limits put in place for nitrogen and phosphorus in the river. And, and so finally, you know, we sued in, in federal district court and we lost on this. And then we appealed and we filed in um, federal appellate court and we lost. But in each case, we had, we had the federal government. We had EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, Region 3, that oversees the mid-Atlantic area. And they kept on telling the Virginia Department of Environmental Quality of Hey, pay attention to the Shenandoah Riverkeeper and the Potomac Riverkeeper people. Their, their arguments are making sense here, and we need to be doing more. And so finally, in 2021, DEQ agreed to, to develop numeric nutrient limits for nitrogen and phosphorus. And then they decided that that's going to be too hard and too challenging to, to come up with specific numbers for that. We're going to use chlorophyll A as a stand-in, as sort of a, a placeholder for nitrogen and phosphorus. So that got put in place, and they just started testing this year, and they're probably not complete with their testing for this year. And if it's determined that the numbers are too high, then we will be able to get the Shenandoah River put on Virginia's impaired waters list. And so what does, if 
you know, getting, if Virginia puts the Shenandoah River system on the impaired waters list, what's that mean? What's that do? Well, what it does is that it's a triggering action and it's, by, by doing so, Environmental Protection Agency goes back to the state for this impaired waters list, and they say, all right, these waters are impaired. What are you going to do about it? You need to do something about that. You need to develop a plan to get them unimpaired, to get them back healthy. And so, and again, this gets really wonky, but the, the state is then compelled to produce what's called a TMDL, a total total maximum daily load. And what that means is that how much pollution can go into the river system per day without harming the river system. And so how do you do that? Well, you have to do a study. Well, how do you do a study? Well, you get DEQ to do it. And it's, it's very time consuming. It's not easy. I readily admit it's not easy. It's challenging, but it it acts as a triggering mechanism to get the TMDL process to take hold and to begin work. And then the other thing that we did and we were successful in getting, um, even though we didn't get a freshwater harmful algal bloom budget for all of Virginia, is we got $2.5 million put into the state budget for a Shenandoah River harmful algal bloom study. And so that got put in place in 2021, and it was put into Governor Northam, who was a Democrat, and it was put into his last budget, $2.5 million, and we're like, oh, this is great. And then the election was held, the gubernatorial election was held, and the Democrat lost, and a Republican won. And, and so, you know, that's life in the big city. Those things happen. And we were very concerned that the $2.5 million study was going to be cut out of the budget. And then, lo and behold, one day, the budget comes out, a, re- a revision budget comes out, and the $2.5 million was not taken out, but $1 million was added to do a harmful algal bloom study for Lake Anna. And Lake Anna is a lake that sits in between Virginia and Washington, and it's where lots of well-off folks have summer homes and second homes and things of that nature. And there are a lot of legislators in Richmond, the capital of Virginia, and also in D.C. that have a summer home down there. And they have been suffering from these large algal blooms on Lake Anna for probably 10 or more years. And so they weren't able to use or enjoy their lakefront property, much like a lot of folks on the Shenandoah River aren't able to use and enjoy the river. And so once the million dollar ad got put in place for Lake Anna, we knew that we were golden and we knew that that budget was going to pass, which it did. And so, so that study just got underway this year, just a couple of months ago. And they, they turned it over to Virginia Department of Environmental Quality. And they in turn looked to the federal government to the U.S. Geological um, Survey folks, USGS folks, and the Interstate Commission on on the Potomac River Basin to conduct this three-year study. And so the first two years are going to be just data collection, and then the third year is going to be looking at findings and recommendations. And so we are happy about that, but we would still like to see not just, I mean, of course I want to see the Shenandoah River tested 
for harmful algal blooms, but I would like to see all Virginia rivers and streams that are suffering from algal blooms to also be tested. And so, you know, our, our long range goal is to get a, uh, you know, a budget put in place for freshwater harmful algal bloom testing for Virginia. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Waters West Fly Fishing Outfitters is your go-to resource for spay and swung fly techniques for the OP and beyond. They're known for their deep selection of unique high-quality fly tie materials, and they are the gateway to some of the great steelhead rivers in the country. I was able to get out on the water with Ed, and it was an amazing day. We uh, hit the shop early, met him at the shop. We fired up the old vehicle and headed out on the river. Ed is the type of guy that you feel comfortable right from uh, minute one, and it was a good day. We ended the trip uh, for buying into this unimproved boat ramp, uh, pulling the boat out, and, and we ended up with a great opportunity and landed a nice, very nice cromer and had a few other touches. Fished one of the great rivers in the country. It was amazing. Not only do they cover steelhead, but all species in the area, and they have a passion for all fish that swim up or live around salt. They can outfit any angler from the beginner to the most hardcore fishing bum you can imagine. They have a great online store, fast shipping, and uh, you will be supporting conservation when you support Waters Last. Please check in with Ed and Kyle right now to say hi and let them know you heard uh, from them on this podcast. And you can do that right now, wetflyswing.com slash waterswest. Talk real briefly about um, the Riverkeeper in general, like the National. Do you know the history there? I know. Sure, I know yeah. So, we, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, back in, in, the, in the late 1990s and into the early 2000s, the Hudson River up in New York, um, just outside of New York, was suffering terribly from large-scale pollution from... Uh, General Electric and and other large manufacturing facilities dealing with PCBs and things of that nature. And a lot of commercial fishermen were suffering as a result of this pollution that was going on in Hudson Bay. And and so a lot of the, the fishermen came together along with a number of attorneys and environmental groups and they started fighting these polluters up there in, in Hudson Bay and on the Hudson River, not Hudson Bay, but on the Hudson River. And they started fighting and winning. And then as a result of that, they stood up and they created the, the Riverkeeper to be responsible for looking after and protecting the Hudson River. And, uh, and so that that became, you know, sort of a, a home run and other environmental groups. We started looking at what was going on in the Hudson river and how could that be replicated and how could that be used in other areas of the country? And so, you know, from that there, you know, the Casco Bay keeper and a lot of the other river systems in the, in the Northeast uh, stood up and and started you know creating their own riverkeeper system and so you know now there's i don't know have the exact number i should but you know probably 300 keepers are in in the united states and the potomac river keeper we we got stood up in 2000 i think it was like 2003 2000 
uh, right around that uh, time. And then in 2015, the river, the Potomac Riverkeeper was doing work out in the Shenandoah and they were doing work, you know, in the upper Potomac. And, and because we're a nonprofit organization, we rely upon grants, we rely upon foundations, we rely upon individual members to, to donate and to provide funding. And, and so, you know, all three river keepers were really trying to reinvent the wheel for the Potomac Riverkeeper area. And, and so we created the Potomac Riverkeeper Network where we have the three keepers. And now we have one executive director, Nancy Stoner. We have a development person that raises funds for all three riverkeepers. So we're getting a much better return on investment. It allows the riverkeepers to stay out in the field much, much more. And, and we have a shared headquarters to take care of all of that behind the scenes work that's so critical to running an organization and it doesn't need to be replicated three times. And, and so what we're finding is that the, you know, our organization, Potomac River Keeper Network, we're finding that that sort of approach to river keeper systems are, are being used in a number of different areas. Um, you find it over on the Eastern shore of Maryland where a number of the smaller river systems have have come together under shore rivers and and then out in California there are several river systems that are that are doing comparable things. And so it allows our our money to go much further in this network approach to doing our work. Wow. Yeah. So you guys are all over the country and and do you I it sounds like you're pretty focused in in your area, the uh you know, the Shenandoah, I, I, you mentioned Mossy Creek earlier. So that, yeah. let's just finish that little section up there. So Mossy Creek flows into, talk about how it flows into the Shenandoah, uh, Shenandoah and then the connection there, because I think these are some of the areas we'll probably be fishing here next year. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So Mossy, Mossy Creek ends up flowing into the, into the, the North Fork of the Shenandoah. And, and then, you know, that ultimately will flow North and, it will flow through a, a bunch of small towns, you know, Edinburgh and Woodstock and, you know, Moore Town and Tom's River and uh, Strasburg. And, and, and so, you know, there, there are a number of, of small streams. And then the, the other thing that's, that's really important to keep in mind, too, is that one of the things that also makes the Shenandoah Valley so cool and so unique is the karst topography. And so if you look at a mountain you know, you just see the mountain and, and, but if you looked under it and sort of did a cross section of the mountain, it would look like Swiss cheese or, you know, one of your kitchen sponges filled with holes and nooks and, and crannies. And, and so all of that water, when it, when it rains, the vast majority of it percolates through the, the soil and it gets down into the groundwater. And, and right now, I mean, you know, I mentioned earlier that the, you know, the Shenandoah River system is just running very low. And probably I would say 85% of the water that you see on the North Fork and, the, and on the South Fork of the Shenandoah is coming directly from groundwater, not water off the surface, but water that is, is coming through springs and seeps and, and percolating up and, um, you know, coming through that. And so, that's both good and bad in that you have great water for 
you know, trout streams up in Shenandoah National Park and you have, you know, nice, cool temperatures in those streams. But the thing that can be bad about karst topography is that if there is pollution taking place in an area, it has the potential to have that water go directly off the fields and into a fissure and then gets deposited directly into the groundwater. And there's no, you know, filtration removing all of those impurities and chemicals and, and everything else. And so you can, you, you can have that go directly in, into the groundwater. The other thing that's also a bit concerned is that, you know, because you have this increased nitrogen and phosphorus load, you're seeing nitrogen levels over time slowly increasing in in the river and in the water and so the human body can you know nitrogen it's in our air it's in our it's in our water it's naturally occurring it's an element but when you see nitrogen loads continue to grow at some point it has the potential to be harmful to to people and animals and so and so that's a concern and then the other thing that's also a concern is that um, you know, out in the valley, there are a number of showcase streams in the Chesapeake Bay region. And the showcase stream is a stream where there is a lot of BMP's best management practices being put in place. And they're seeing if if those BMP's are can work and it can improve the water quality. And if so, they will take this sort of pilot program that they're learning in these showcase streams and use it in other streams and in other rivers to, you know, to learn from that and to sort of spread the gospel. Anyway, one of the um, streams is called um, Smith Creek and here in the Shenandoah Valley. And what they've discovered and learned is that the residency time in the groundwater in the aquifer underneath Smith Creek and residency of time is just the amount of time it takes to go into the into the groundwater and for it to exit the groundwater into surface water. And so the the residency time in Smith Creek varies anywhere from 8 to 12 to 13 and even more years. And so what that means is that we could be doing all of these agricultural improvements to to get nitrogen out of the river system but we, you know, a lot of times you know, state delegates, House delegates and state senators and, and um, general assembly members, you know, they think that if we put a million dollars into a plan next year, we're going to get a million dollars in improvements and in return. And that's not the case here. And so you're, you're seeing a very slow return on your investment. And so, you know, that's a little worrisome. But, you know, Mossy Creek is a you know, in many respects, Mossy Creek is a is a huge success story in that it allows, you know, there's a lot of agriculture that goes on in and around Mossy Creek. And the a lot of the Mossy Creek landowners and farmers, they recognize that that they have something really special there and that this that this creek is just a wonderful trout fishery. And, and it's important to the region. It generates, you know, money for businesses like Mossy Creek Outfitters and B&Bs and, you know, little restaurants and shops and, you know, fly shops all over the place. And so, 
and they allow the public to access that water. And there's a there's a sort of a it's not a sign contract per se. There there is a a little card that you that you for access to Mossy Creek that you're going to be a good steward of the land and of the water. But um, you know, really people are accessing much of Mossy Creek just through the kindness and generosity of the landowners in that area. And so when people go down there, I always encourage people to enjoy it and to be very respectful and very mindful. And if you go through a gate, close the gate. If the gate's open, leave it open. If it was closed, close it. Pick up your trash. Do more than pick up your trash. If you see other trash, pick up that trash. Um, if you happen to see the farmer, say hello. Thank that person for, for you know, giving you access. They don't have to give you access, but they do. And so to me, Mossy Creek is just, it's just a great success story. And it's an amazing fishery too. It's just cool and so much fun. It's a spring creek, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's a spring creek. Nice. Well, we'll be checking out Mossy Creek. I think when we're out there, um, let's do, let's take it out of here with our quick little uh, shout out here and then we'll jump into um, a quick little rapid fire. Well, before we get there, maybe anything else we want to shed light on that uh, we haven't talked about today. I know we're probably leaving a lot on the table with the river keepers or Shenandoah. Uh, yeah, no, that's, I mean, you know, that, that's really, that's really it. I mean, I, I encourage everybody that listens to, you know, if you have a river keeper in the area, do everything you can to support them. Uh, they're doing God's work out there. You know, there, there's probably no other organization that, you know, what I call a persistent stare that I am just looking at the river system all the time. And if something's going on, we usually find out about it pretty quickly. And, and to join, you know, your local riverkeeper organization, it's important not just for the funding, but but going back from a legal standpoint, when we go to court and we engage in a lawsuit, we need to have be able to demonstrate that our members are being harmed, that their use and enjoyment of the river is being impaired. And so if a lawsuit goes before the court and you know, you say, oh, I'm, I'm being harmed, the, you know, the river is, you know, suffering. And the the judge and the opposing counsel, they're going to look around and they're going to ask, well, who's being harmed? There's nobody here. And if you're able to show that, you know, we have 100 members, you know, within five miles of, of this location and their use and enjoyment is being harmed, that demonstrates what's called standing. And so that that allows these lawsuits to proceed. And so from that standpoint, it's also very important to support your local Riverkeeper organization to ensure that they have standing in their respective watersheds. Perfect. Perfect. And we'll put a link out in the show notes to uh, your um, website. You mentioned earlier, ShenandoahRiverkeeper.org. Uh, and uh, mm-hmm. so we're going to do a quick little uh, school shout out. So we're working on this with uh, Mossy Creek. We're doing our trout school out there. Mm-hmm. It's going to be pretty cool hitting probably some brook trout and some other stuff in the spring creeks. But so I want to give a quick shout out. We just got off the Euro Nymphing School out uh, in Idaho, and um, and this is to uh, some of the folks that attended: Mark, Mike, Craig, uh, Jim, Dave, and Andrew. And uh, and Casey was the winner, so we gave away this trip, and Casey won the trip and a bunch of gear. So a quick shout out there to that. Who would be as we get into this? Um, you know, for you, Mark, do you have? I always like to hear where you're heading. So it sounds like you fish that area. What, what's your species? I know you have a lot of experience with bass. If you have yeah, one I- species to chase, what is it? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just a smallmouth bass addict. 
you know, that's, that's my, my go-to, uh, fish in, in the Shenandoah. I, I still guide on the Potomac. I guide on the Shenandoah, but you know, if I have a day off, you know, nine times out of 10, I am, um, on the river smallmouth bass fishing. Just love it. It's just, it's just such a great fishery. Are there smallmouth, how far, what's the distribution of smallmouth up the, um, kind of the Shenandoah? God, they go all the way up. I mean, the, the smallmouth bass are found from Harper's Ferry, and it runs all the way up into South River. And then the South River, you know, which is one of the major tributaries to the South Fork of the Shenandoah, you'll find smallmouth bass all the way up into the into the headwaters, um, you know, up, up in that area. And then on the South River, you know, you have a really strong trout fishery up there now as well in the Waynesboro, Virginia area, but smallmouth bass, you know, on the South Fork and on the North Fork, it's just a great fishery. It's also a great, you know, just from a fishing standpoint, you know, the, the river system, it, it has a very mild gradient. You don't have, you know, tremendous rapids on the, on the Shenandoah River system. You know, the, the biggest set of rapids is right before you hit Harper's Ferry at Bull Falls, which is a you know, it's a it's a healthy class three all year long, but for the vast majority of the river, you know, you just have riffles and class ones and a few class twos sprinkled here and there. But it's a wonderful river just to take, you know, the wife and two kids out in the canoe and and just float down a five mile stretch and, you know, just hang a rod over the side and catch some sunnies and catch some bluegills and catch some smallies and lots of gentle gravel bars and everything else. So it's just a, um, it's just a wonderful fishery from, from that standpoint. That's good stuff. What would be your, you know, for those smallmouth bass fishermen, lots of people are listening, have, have tried it or going to try it. What would be a tip you, a general tip you give somebody for, to catch some smallmouth? Yeah. Um, to me, the most important piece, when you get out on the river, you're looking and it's like, there are trees, there are ledge systems, there are boulders, uh, there are deep pools there. You know, you look around, it's a very target-rich environment. And, and so I always tell people the most important piece of structure on the river, it's kind of abstract, it's current. Um, the fish are constantly relating to current. They're trying to constantly position themselves in relation to current. How can I expend as little energy as possible while I'm in this water? while being in a position that there is as much energy as possible coming down the river. So they, you know, of course, you know, classic hiding spots and eddy pockets behind boulders, but you'll find them right at the nose of a boulder in, in front where the water comes down and it pillows up against the rock and it has to go to the right or to the left. And so it slows down. And so you can find a fish right in there, but it's current They're you know, always position, positioning themselves in relation to current. Um, and so for, for smallies, that, that's, that's a tip I always tell people, you know, constantly keep in mind, where's the current, where are the seams, fish the seams. Right on. No, that's, that's awesome. And another thing uh, I've been curious about, about some of the lawyers in the past, I know one of them, Rob, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr., I guess was, yep. I think at 86 is when he started. I think the, the river keeper started in 66, yeah. 86, I think, as part of that, Hudson's maybe, I'm not sure, right. but he got involved. Have there been some pretty high-end attorneys like him that have been part of this? And talk about that a little bit. Just give us a little history on that, because that's kind of where I first, well, I've heard about you before, but I know I, that kind of got some no notoriety. 
Yeah, so so Bobby Kennedy Jr. was was one of the original founders of Waterkeeper Alliance, and and he came out of Pace Environmental Law School, and and there have been a number of you know very prominent environmental attorneys um, that have come out of out of Pace. Our one of our attorneys, he he just left about a year ago to to um, move out to California and become the San Diego Coast Keeper. He came out of the environmental law school. And so, you know, the people that we get, they are incredibly knowledgeable about environmental law, the Clean Water Act, you know, Safe Water Drinking Act, um, things of that nature. And so each river system and each, you know, keeper goes out and they they find their folks that, you know, want to do God's work and do the right thing. And, and so, you know, we have cultivated, you know, a number of organizations that have done that. And a lot of them love doing work with us because, you know, not only is it, you know, good working on the, on the right side of an issue, but keepers are more than willing to go out and to collect samples and to go out and really, you know, horrendous conditions and to, you know, pull a grab sample when, you know, in the middle of high water to, you know, pull a pollution sample and we're willing to do the the hard work and the heavy lifting and the nitty gritty to get out there. And so you'll find in the Waterkeeper Alliance, I mean, we have uh, Dan Estrin as general counsel for, for Waterkeeper Alliance. And, um, you know, we've been involved in a number of you know, large, you know, national, you know, level um, fights, you know, we've been involved. Um, you know, recently, there was the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, which was to take cheap fracked gas coming out of Pennsylvania and West Virginia and run it across the entirety of the Commonwealth to, you know, to ship it overseas. And, you know, we fought and fought against that. And, and use clean water law and and other environmental laws and uh, dominion power was the primary dominion and duke were the two primary owners of the atlantic coast pipeline and it's probably been i guess three years now but you know they eventually decided on their own not in a courtroom but because we were winning so much in so many of these court cases and the court was finding on our behalf that they decided that, you know what, it's it's not in our financial interest to build a new pipeline across the uh, across the Commonwealth. They already had pipelines in place. They already had right-of-ways in place. It's just that they were going to get the biggest return on their investment by building a new pipeline with new right-of-ways. And, and so, you know, this compelled them to to do the right thing and to, to, to not construct a new unneeded and unwanted uh, pipeline across all of Virginia. Right. Wow. That's, that is awesome. What do you think would be, what do you think would happen if there weren't these groups like the river keepers? It seems like there's obviously the EPA, there's all these environmental acts that have been out there for a long time. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, what would be, we'd be looking at like, do you think things would eventually people would figure some of this out or what would this country look like without the groups that we're talking about here? Yeah, I, I think that you would have a um, sort of a, a much more polluted environment than what we have even even right now. Because what ends up happening is that it's David versus Goliath. You know, I mean, if you if you have 
a large multinational corporation, if you, you have a large, and I'm just throwing that just because they're big, and I apologize, but I mean, if you have like an Exxon or a Mobil or a Shell Oil, you know, large energy firms, and they want to run a pipeline, you know, through, say, a Native American indigenous community in North Dakota, and they're poor and they have very little resources, they are in no way, shape, or form ready or able to to fight and to go up against a large, very well-heeled energy company. And so by having these larger environmental, you know, groups ready, willing, and able to go in and to fight the good fight, you know, you, you would see pollution occurring at a, at a much greater rate than you're seeing right now. That's it. That's a, that's a good take. And give us a, do you listen to any podcasts? Are there any conservation podcasts or anything that you listen to out there? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I listen to, you know, a bunch of the keepers have their own sort of individual podcast and, oh, they do. Um, you nice. know, listen to some of those. I, I actually listen to yours and, you know, a lot of your fly fishing. I, you know, sort of Walter, Walter Mitty and that, you know, I, I can't go out and fish Idaho and I can't go out and fish you know, Pacific Northwest, but I still want to go out there and fish it and, and learn. And so um, I love listening to, you know, some of the guides that you you have on talking about their water, and, uh, their approach. And, you know, I pick up all sorts of sort of uh, little tips from from them as well. And it just, it's just it's just a, I don't know. I just love getting out there. But I really enjoy the, um, the people that you have on your Wet Fly Swing podcast. And so it's just a lot of fun. Nice, nice. Well, we'll highlight some of um, some of the folks that are you know connected to your group, and yeah, we're going to do more of this as we uh, head into the trip next year. But um, yeah, Mark, uh, we will definitely keep in touch with you. We'll send everybody out to uh, ShenandoahRiverkeeper.org if they have questions. And uh, yeah, just want to thank you for all your time today and all the good work you're doing out there in the Shenandoah. Well, thanks so much for having me, and uh, look forward to seeing you guys next year sometime. That is a wrap. You can grab all of the show notes at wetflyswing.com. And please follow us on Instagram and share this episode out with someone you love. Please send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com, if you have any feedback or want us to put together an episode on this podcast for you. Check in anytime. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and would love to meet up with you on the water. We have new fly fishing schools going all year long and all around the country. So if you want to connect, let's do it right now. All right, time to get out of here. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you have a great morning or great afternoon wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by and checking out the show today. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.